Last week, uh, Pastor Brett kicked off our series in earnest request where we are looking at prayers from long ago, prayers in the Old Testament. And we're going to discover how they're different from maybe how we pray. And we want to take something away from those ancient prayers, allow them to speak into our prayer life, and to let these ancient prayers focus and refine our prayers today. One of our directives here at TFRC is to be spirit-led, where we follow the leading of the Holy Spirit in everything. And our prayer lives are key to being spirit-led. And using actual prayers from Scripture can help us seek the leading of the Holy Spirit in our lives. The Scripture for this morning is Exodus 32, verses 11 to 13. You can go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. Exodus is the second book in the Bible. Uh, You can also look up Exodus 32, verses 11 to 13 on your phones. Um, A quick note about this passage is that in this passage, God is ready to destroy the Israelites. You see, God had delivered them out of slavery in Egypt. God heard their cries, saw their suffering, called Moses, sent him to Pharaoh, performed the 10 plagues on Egypt, parted the Red Sea so the Israelites could cross on dry ground. And when the Egyptian army followed them, God crashed the sea down upon them. And then God provided food and water for the Israelites in the desert, brought them to Mount Sinai to give them the Ten Commandments. And while Moses is receiving the Ten Commandments, the people build a golden calf and worship it. And so God's anger burns against them, and he wants to destroy them. And Moses prays to God and seems to convince God uh, to not destroy the Israelites, which leads to an interesting question, theological question, is that does God change his mind? He was going to destroy the Israelites. Moses prayed, and then God decided to not destroy the Israelites. Does God change his mind? Well, a very simple theological answer to that is no, God doesn't. Uh, What Scripture will often do when talking about God is use something called anthropomorphism anthropomorphism. That is a really big word, which simply means describing God in human terms. For example, the Bible will often talk about the right hand of God. Well, God doesn't have a right hand. The right hand of God is using a human term to describe God. Uh, This prayer of persuasion is not God literally being persuaded, but it's using human terms to describe this conversation Moses has with the Almighty. And in this conversation, we learn something about both God and Moses and something about prayer. Our scripture reader for this morning is Paula Perry. So Paula, go and make your way on up to the podium. As she does, I'm going to ask if you're able, please stand and face the center of the room. We read from the center of the room to remind us that Scripture is to be central in our lives. Scripture is our primary lens for determining how we live. And we stand because we believe that this is the Word of God. And so, Paula, whenever you are ready, please read Exodus 32, verses 11 to 13. 
But, but Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people, whom you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, it was with evil intent that he brought them out, to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Paula, thank you very much. You may be seated. A little over a week ago, Shannon and I and our two older kids were in Chicago. We had just got back from traveling overseas, and we were renting a car at the airport in Chicago. And when we got to the garage where the cars were, rather than assigning us a specific car, the employee pointed to two rows of cars and said, you can take any car in these two rows, which that was pretty cool. We got to pick out of like 20 cars, which is also where the trouble began because we had to pick one out of these 20 cars. Um, now, the second car in the first row, I noticed, was a cherry red Dodge Charger. And I was like, Shannon, let's get the Charger. How much fun would that be? Well, Shannon wanted to get this off-white midsize SUV in the other row. And I was like, that's boring. Why would we want to get that? And she replied, she pointed to our four giant suitcases and said, we have these four giant suitcases. There is no way that we're going to fit them all in the trunk of that charger. I personally think it's unfair when my wife uses rock-solid logic. That is totally unfair. So I thought to myself, do we really need these four suitcases? Maybe we can make two trips. I don't know. Long story short, we got the off-white midsize SUV. Now, it's one thing to try to persuade your spouse. Moses is having a conversation with God, trying to persuade him. Again, don't take this too far theologically. God doesn't change his mind like we change our minds. Yet Moses' approach to God in his prayer is very insightful for us. And this prayer of persuasion, as I'm calling it, begins with a really dumb question. In fact, I'm calling it a bone-headed question. Look at this question that Moses asks to begin his prayer. Verse 11, Moses sought the favor of the Lord his God. Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people who, brought, who you brought out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand? Now, if I'm God, I strike Moses down right there and then for asking such a dumb question. Why should your anger burn against your people? Well, let me repeat what happened up to this point. God's delivered the Israelites out of Egypt. He heard their cries, saw their suffering, called Moses, sent him to Pharaoh, performed 10 plagues in Egypt, acts of mighty wonders. And then they leave and Pharaoh gets his army to hunt them down. And they are trapped between the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army. 
And God parts the Red Sea so the Israelites could cross on dry ground. And when the Egyptian army follows them, God crashes the sea down upon them, destroying the mightiest army in the world. And then God provides food and water for the Israelites in the desert. And he brings them to Mount Sinai to give them the Ten Commandments. And while Moses is receiving the Ten Commandments, this is what happens. Exodus 32, the first four verses. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses, who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. And Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons, and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron, and he took what they handed him and made it into an idol, cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. And then they said, These are your gods, Israel, who brought you out of Egypt. God does these amazing wonders on behalf of the Israelites. And the first chance they get, they worship an idol. And they give the golden calf credit for all of the wonders God has done. It's one of the greatest betrayals in all of Scripture. Of course God's going to be furious. And Moses has the audacity to ask, Hey, God, why are you so mad? What's the big deal? It's a boneheaded question. What is Moses doing with asking, God, why should your anger burn? Why are you so mad? Now, the question, why did you do, can actually be asking two different things. Why, that word why, can be asking about something in the past, and it can be asking about something in the future. High school graduation was a month ago. There are many recent high school graduates who are now working this summer. Now, if I were to ask a recent high school graduate, hey, why did you get that job? Why did you get that job? They could answer in one of two ways. They could answer with a past orientation. They could say what caused it to happen. Well, I got the job because I applied and I was the best qualified applicant, so that's why I got the job. Um, that would focus on the past. What caused it to happen? But they could also answer it with a future focus. They could be answering, well, what are you trying to accomplish by getting that job? Why did you get that job? Well, I got that job because I'm trying to earn money for college. See, that answer focuses on the future. What are you trying to achieve? Now, in Hebrew, the original language of the Old Testament, interestingly enough, it has two different words for why. One of the words for why focuses on past, what caused it to happen. Another word for why focuses on the future. What are you trying to accomplish? And when Moses asked, why should your anger burn, he uses the future-focused word. Moses is not asking God what caused him to be angry. It's obvious why God is angry. Moses is asking God, what do you hope to accomplish by using your anger to destroy the Israelites? 
You brought these people out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand. By the way, that's another anthropomorphism. God doesn't have a hand. You brought these people out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand. Are you just going to destroy them now? That doesn't make any sense. Moses begins his prayer with what may seem like a boneheaded question, but he's really asking God, what are you trying to accomplish? Which is the beginning of a bold prayer? Moses is very bold with God. Going to verse 12, where he says, why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger. Relent and do not bring disaster on your people. Moses continues his focus on the future. Hey, look, if you kill the Israelites, the Egyptians will say that you brought them out of Egypt to wipe them out. What will that accomplish? And then he implores God, turn from your anger, relent, don't bring disaster. Sometimes we treat God like a genie where God has to grant me my wishes. And sometimes people believe, well, if we have enough faith, God is obligated to give us what we ask for. It is tempting to treat faith like a transactional relationship with God. God, if I believe, if I obey, if I pray, if I fast, if I tithe, then you have to, you have to give me what I ask for. God does not have to give us anything. God owes us nothing. God is not obligated to do what we want God to do. But at the same time, God wants us to come to him with our requests. He wants us to ask. He wants us to be bold. Not because he owes us anything, but because he wants us to come to him. Even when what we may ask for seems unlikely. Jumping ahead to King David. King David, as some of you know, the Bible says, was a man after God's own heart. But even King David was a sinful man. He committed adultery with a woman named Bathsheba, and in their affair, she becomes pregnant. And in order to cover up the affair, he has her husband killed, and he marries her. And through the prophet Nathan, God confronts David. And David confesses his sin and repents of his sin. And yet God tells him that the baby will die. And so David fasted and he wept and he prayed to the point that his servants were concerned about his health. And then when the baby dies, his servants are reluctant to tell him the news because they're not sure what David will do when he hears the news of the baby's death. And when David hears the news, he gets up and he eats and he seems to be fine. And his servants are confused by his behavior and his reaction to what had just happened. And David explains his behavior in 2 Samuel 12, where David answers them. Well, while the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. And I thought, who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. 
But now that he is dead, why should I go on fasting? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. David's thinking was, what do I have to lose by praying for the baby's life? Who knows? Maybe God will be gracious. But now that God has acted, I will accept what God has done. David knew that it was unlikely God was going to act because of what God had told him. But he prayed anyway. And he prayed until there was no reason to anymore. Which is a really good picture for us. Pray for something bold and keep praying until you have no reason left to hope. And if God doesn't answer your prayer, that's okay. And one other takeaway, something that I think is really good news, is you can pray to God in the midst of your sin. We need to confess our sin like David did. It's a good idea to confess our sins at the beginning of our prayers. But look at what David prayed for. David prayed for the baby who was conceived in adultery. And in the case of the Israelites, they were worshiping the golden calf. And while Moses did not sin, he wasn't a part of it, but he advocated for those who did. Likewise, Jesus advocates for us in our sin. So just because you're in the midst of sin doesn't mean you can't pray to God. Look, there are situations in our lives that are messed up because we messed them up. It is totally our fault. It is okay to ask God for help in those situations that are messed up because we messed them up. Confess our sin and go make bold requests. Pray until we have no reason to anymore. And again, if God doesn't answer our prayers, that's God's decision. So Moses makes a bold prayer, and he finishes his prayer with what I'm calling a backward focus. Moses ends with imploring God to remember, going back to the passage in verse 13. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all this land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Over and over again in the Bible, God tells his people to remember what God has done for them. Moses takes this a step further. He implores God to remember. Isaiah chapter 2 says this. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. For the first two weeks of June, um, I was on a Bible study tour in Israel. There were a total of 45 people on this tour. Eight of us were from TFRC. The rest of the people were from all over the country. 
And what made it extra special um, was my wife and son were on the trip, so that was a great experience for all of us. And as I have on previous study trips, I learned a lot. Uh, the leader of our trip was a man named Brad Gray, and Brad was a fabulous teacher, and he taught on this passage from Isaiah that's on the screen. And he focused on that phrase, in the last days. And he pointed out, and when I got home, I double-checked this. It was right. But he pointed out that in the last days could also be translated in the behind days. In the behind days. Now, what's strange about that is that the last days are in the future. And the behind days are in the past. So why would the Bible refer to the future as the in the behind days? And here was Brad's insight. We are super anxious about the future. We don't know what's going to happen in the future. And we get so fixated on it. And our anxiety for what the future holds, it consumes us. And we are always trying to control what will happen in the future. Think about how much time we spend trying to set up what we want to have happen in the future. And when it comes to prayer, the majority of our prayers are making requests. And what are those quest requests all about? Uh, the future. Our prayer life primarily deals with our anxiety about the future. And you know something, we have no choice. We have to walk into the future. It is inevitable. But let's just play with this idea of the future being the behind days. And let's just use the metaphor of walking into the future. So if we're walking into the future, and the future is behind us, well, how do I have to orient my body in order for the future to be behind me? Well, it's not that hard. You just turn around. And if I walk backwards, now the future, well, those are the days behind me. But if I'm turned around walking backwards into the future, what am I looking at? I'm looking at the past. Now, the scripture isn't teaching us to live in the past. But it is telling us that as you move into the future, you need to remember the past. Over and over again in the Bible, God tells his people, remember what God has done for you. And Moses takes us a step further, and he implores God to remember. How does God want us to handle all this anxiety we have about the future? He wants us to remember the past. Remember what God has done for you. Now remember that God has not kept us from every storm. When we look back, how many storms have you gone through in your life? Remember that God isn't going to keep you from the storms. 
There's going to be storms in the future, and we can count on that because there's a bunch of storms in our past. But remember how God has got you through all of the storms. Storms are coming, but God will see us through them. As we remember what God has done in the past, how God has been with us through thick and thin, that same God who was with us in the past is the same God who is with us in the future. So it's important to orient ourselves so that the future, those days, are behind us. Because as we walk into what we don't know, we need to remember God's faithfulness in what he has done. What is something that God has done for you in the past that can encourage you in the future? It's God's plan for dealing with our anxiety for what is yet to come. After Moses prays, God relents from his anger and God shows mercy and he answers Moses' prayer. And just a couple of things I want to remind us of from this prayer, things to take away for our own prayer lives. First is we learn why God picked Moses to be the leader. Because clearly Moses cares about the Israelites. He cares about them so much that he will go to the extent of going to bat for them in the very presence of God. Even when God sees against, seems to be against them, Moses goes to bat for them. When you pray, who do you go to bat for? What do you go to bat for? It's okay to pray for things that will benefit you. But how often do you go to bat for someone else in your prayers? Or maybe for something that doesn't benefit you. We also learn something about God. That God wants us to come boldly to advocate. God doesn't want us to be passive and just, hey, let's wait and see what God does. No, no, no. God wants us to care. God wants us to care about things. He also wants us to care about the things God cares about. And as I've already mentioned, we can go to God in our sin. We confess our sins to God, and then we make our requests known to God. We do not have to get our lives cleaned up to pray. We just have to be sensitive enough to confess when we've done wrong. And remember God's faithfulness in the past. God has been good to us before, and God will see us through whatever is before us. Almost every week here at TFRC, we highlight the prayer wall in the back. And I want to challenge you this morning that when the service is done, to go to the prayer wall and write down a bold prayer to put in the wall. Go to bat for something that really matters whether it's a serious health situation or a relationship on the rocks or something that is causing you significant financial stress. It doesn't matter how unlikely. 
it may be for God to answer this prayer. Go to bat for something that really matters. Understand that God can always say no, but that's up to God, not us. Let's not say no for God. Let's make him say no to us. God wants us to come to him and remember God's faithfulness. Advocate for something that matters. Who knows? Maybe God will be gracious to you. Please pray with me. And Lord, we do come before you this morning and we are mindful of our sin. The things that maybe even this morning we've done wrong. But Lord, I would ask that you would give us the eyes to see that you want us to come to you. Lord, give us the courage to come to you boldly. Lord, we know that you owe us nothing. Lord, we also know that you are gracious to us. So give us the courage to come. And we thank you for your goodness to us throughout our years. And Lord, we thank you for your promise to be with us, regardless of what happens in our future. And it's in the name of Jesus, our Savior, we pray. Amen. Receive God's blessing. May the Lord bless you and keep you. And may the Lord make his face shine on you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace. Amen.